Imagine a world where you would be having regular conversations with your ideal clients and referral partners. At Spotlight Podcasting, we help consultants build strategic relationships using interview podcasting. Find out more by visiting spotlightpodcasting.com. So welcome back to Leaders Consulting. I'm here with Molly Angel, who's a change management consultant that specializes in the intersection of healthcare and technology. Uh, she's also a frequent speaker and the host of the Change Manifesto podcast. Uh, we've gotten to know each other through what I would call sort of pandemic online networking. And we've also done some work together. So Molly, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Lovely to be here. Absolutely. So today we're going to start off by basically addressing how you believe independents can and should avoid body shops and forge their own identity as independent consultants instead. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Sure. The thing that I have run into pretty frequently since I went independent um, back in 2017 is that you will get phone calls from different organizations who sort of pitch you the idea that um, they have connections with and they work closely with lots of different, in my case, healthcare organizations, and that if you sign up with them, they'll be able to keep you busy with contracts and with work. And while that you know, general proposition is a pretty, you know, clear cut. And I think in many cases can be a successful way for people such as myself, independent contractors to connect with and find work. I think what I've learned over the last four years is you have to be pretty thoughtful and very careful because the ones that I call body shops really aren't anything more than just sort of a staffing agency. Hmm. They don't really have the kind of relationship with the entity that you would like to work with that you think or hope that they do so that they're setting you up for success. They tend to just want to, you know, kind of micromanage what you do because they are only focused on the idea that they want to be in good with this this um, entity, with this healthcare organization, so they can just staff any need that they have. So it becomes, you know, you're just part of kind of like a like a consultant mill to them. And I've just found that that is not a satisfactory way to do any kind of quality work for an, um, a healthcare organization. Yeah. Obviously the, the personal relationship side of things is, is really important. This kind of work, right? Absolutely. And, and would you include, I don't know, like agents and other kinds of middlemen under that umbrella as well? Yeah. I mean, I have run into folks who, you know, kind of act like, um, you know, almost like staffing agencies. And, uh, you know, I think that there are some cases where that makes some sense. You know, if it's a super, super technical project that kind of lands in that bottom left-hand corner of just do it, everybody's in agreement, it's pretty clear what needs to be done. Maybe that is a good fit. But once you kind of move outside that, you know, just do it to more complicated or complex projects, working through an agency like this is usually just adds a layer of of confusion and, 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 you know, disconnect, quite frankly, because if they don't really understand who the healthcare organization is and what their true nature and needs are, then they're not helpful at teeing you up to be successful in your engagement with them because you, you may be kind of pulled in a couple different directions. Again, if they're just really focused on 
making sure that they're staffing as many opportunities with this um, organization as possible. They're not thinking about the success of any one given project in terms of its complexity. They just want to know that it's been on time and on budget. Yeah. And, and so it's a pretty clear cut situation there. So what are the alternatives? What can people do mm-hmm. instead? Like what, what's worked with, yeah. for you or what have you seen work for others uh, instead well, of going through these middlemen? Well, ideally you can forge a relationship with a uh, healthcare organization that you develop some credibility and trust with, and they may even extend you the opportunity to sign a master services agreement. Almost all of them require that. And that's really absolutely the ideal, which means that you don't have to work through the auspices of any other middlemen. You just contract directly with the healthcare organization. However, a lot of the really big organizations, they have very complicated um, processes to sign an MSA. So inevitably, you are going to have to work through another organization. But I say in that case, take your time, do your homework, really learn who it is that you're potentially going to be working with and working for. Meanwhile, you're contracted to support the project or the technology implementation at a healthcare organization so that you know that your values are, are really well aligned. And in that case, I think you have um, got a little bit of the best of both worlds. You know, they take a little bit more of the risk for you um, so that you do have the, you know, it's less complex to, to work with somebody who already has a master services agreement, but you're also going to be you know, set up for success, as I say, you're going to have a much better chance at really establishing good outcomes because they're folks whose goals align with yours. Yeah. And so these these agreements that you, you talk about, that's part of the procurement process mm-hmm. that often organizations have to go through. The, you go through this whole vetting process and you have to be sort of security cleared and so forth. Is that right? Yeah. And insurance is a big yeah. thing. And yeah, you have to have um, met a lot of pretty stringent requirements. Um, so as I say, it's it's usually something that um, really large healthcare organizations that tend to have the kind of size of and type of projects that, um, that I work on require. But if you are, um, you know, if you are fortunate enough to find an organization that really does align with your sort of goals and your vision of how um, projects should work, then it doesn't become a source of friction. You're not kind of pulled in two directions with, you know, the healthcare organization really needing some, you know, something that you can see very clearly. Meanwhile, you're having to convince this intermediary group of why going in this specific direction is important. So, um, you know, just finding that that good alignment with uh, an organization that represents your same values. Yeah, yeah. So I'd love to kind of uh, just backtrack now and and hear a little bit more about how you ended up in change management. And if you could also define change management for listeners who may not be as familiar with it. Uh, sure. Fantastic. Yeah, I'll start with the definition. So one um, thing that I usually describe myself as is a recovering lean engineer. I spent many years, you know, mapping out projects, you know, using value stream mapping and using the Toyota production system and Demaic and Six Sigma and, you know, really focusing on how things got done and what got done. And it it wasn't too long before I was involved in a pretty good sized project where people were just clearly confused and unhappy 
and we were not achieving the kind of goals that we needed to achieve. Um, it was the implementation of a huge electronic healthcare record in it in an really large healthcare system. So just massive project with a lot of complexity. But you know, a lot of a lot of unhappy providers, a lot of unhappy people in the in the healthcare system. And um, my life changed when they recruited and brought in a woman named Claire McCarthy who had been very instrumental in helping to implement the same electronic healthcare record in an even larger healthcare system, but who approached this whole process from the perspective of the human factors of change. And I met her just serendipitously at an event. The first week that she came onto the organization, she was kind of wandering around. Remember we used to meet in person and you'd be at convention centers and, you know, these huge places with all these, you know, breakout rooms and so forth. I found her just literally wandering around in the hall and asked her if she needed help. And it turned out we were both going to the same place. So we sat at the table, we got to know each other. And it was just a pivotal moment because as I was describing to her some of the challenges that I was seeing with this big project, she'd now been recruited to help us get turned around. She just laid out in about five sentences what the issues were and how we were going to address them. And I mean, the clarity of it and the logic of it just blew me away. And it was all about helping people understand why we were doing what we were doing and what We needed to help them get ready for and be, you know, able and competent to manage in a new environment. And it just, I mean, it it absolutely irrevocably changed my life to understand that we not only have to think about the technical and the business aspects of a big project like this, but we absolutely have to put the human factors of change on the same plane. And it just, uh, it made so much sense and it made a huge difference to this project. We were able to get the project back on track and successfully complete it. And it was because that missing element was now very much front and center of the process. Yeah. Yeah. That's quite interesting. I'm thinking about, I'm harking back to, you know, days when we did these massive technical implementations or migrations. And I think oftentimes just the pure focus was just like product, product, or, Oh, we're swapping this system out for that system because this process isn't working. We and we always think it's just like the technology when actually if mm. you took a step back, maybe there's actually a lot of, you know, more human factors involved as well. Is that yeah, something you've I, noticed? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, you know, there is a, a, a an aspect or an element of change that, you know, people are excited if especially if they're doing something that they know is either outdated or could be easier. It's not as if people are never excited about change. You know, lots of times we're like, oh, the new thing, this is great. But the the transition from where they are now, feeling very competent and very capable in how they do their work to, you know, walking through this transition to I'm not so sure. And even though I'm excited about it, I feel a little confused and I'm not quite you know, understanding what's expected of me, Mm. really clarifying that for people is what makes the difference in terms of them successfully adopting new technology. One of the big misconceptions of, of change management is that it makes things take longer because you're trying to focus on people's happiness and it couldn't be further from the truth. Um, You know, happiness is, that's a hard goal for anybody. But what we really focus on in change management is people feeling committed to change. And that really is a process of 
helping them understand what's what's expected of them and really supporting them through the process of change so that they eventually become very committed to and take the change and run with it on their own. And that addressing that right up front and very early actually inevitably speeds up a project because you're not finding things out somewhere halfway down the the road that, uh uh-oh, you know, we forgot about this group of people who are really important to this change, but darn it, we didn't address it on the front end because we forgot how important they were because they're kind of tangential to it. Change management makes sure that things like that don't happen so that, you know, you're able to get your process and your product implemented much more quickly and much more easily. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. And are, are there any like specific examples uh, that come to mind where you really felt that focusing on the human side of some big kind of change management project made the big difference um, that you can point to? Yeah, I can tell you two stories. One is where there was a project to revamp the operations of an emergency department. I mean, we've all been sitting there in a chair in the emergency department, emergency department for hours and hours and on end. So it's a, it's been a problem forever. It's not it's not a new problem, but a healthcare system decided that they were going to revamp their intake process in the emergency department so that they could minimize some of this, you know, waiting and speed up the process especially for folks who were kind of low on the triage needs, you know, they had a very simple need or they, you know, were there maybe even inappropriately, a lower level of care would have worked, but the emergency department was where they wandered into. So anyway, long story short, they went through this massive process of really getting people involved, the physicians, the nurses, the techs, the front office staff. And so they felt really confident that the solution they came up with was sound. But within days of sort of flipping the switch and starting the new process, the nurse managers of the ED were all just like in the bathroom crying, they just, you know, were overwhelmed. And this new process was just, you know, terrible. And so it all kind of fell apart. Well, on debrief and, you know, sort of project rescue, which is definitely something I get involved in, we realized that what they had done inadvertently was look at the job description for the nurse managers that had been written probably 10, 12 years ago and said, oh, great, they have all of these, you know, they have all of these responsibilities already, and they're already supposed to have these competencies. So we're just going to change how they do things to sort of activate this part of the the job that they hadn't been focused on for all these years. Well, they did that without any sort of like description, job, you know, job training. Yeah you know, sort of uh, tabletop testing. They just said, oh, great, it's in their job description. So this is what we'll have them do. It had been years since the nurses had been asked to do some of this work. So they were just like, you know, flummoxed how they were going to do the work that they were doing, plus change the orientation. So that's definitely a case where change management would have avoided that problem. It, it They got it all back on track, but of course it was six weeks late and it cost extra money and, you know, all of the other problems that you run into. Yeah. yeah. And then I can tell a story about a, a time when change management worked really well when there was the the notion that okay we're going to change this this basic process that we use in the pharmacy to you know kind of bring in orders make sure that we you know we have a good um process for getting the pharmacy techs kind of oriented to the work for the shift or the day 
And so they involved not only the pharmacy techs, but they involved the nurses and the unit clerks and the folks on the units that were going to be impacted by any change they made. And even reached out to folks like in the lab to make sure that there wasn't anything about what they were deciding that they would change that would have any unintended consequences. And that's what I call gathering the unusual suspects. You know, you, you think you understand a process that goes from point A to, you know, point C and all the steps in between. But sometimes what you're doing does impact other people in a way that they've adapted to that you might not recognize if you don't bring them to the table at the beginning of a process. And there were a couple things that got revealed that if we hadn't done that right at the beginning and really understood how the impact of the change might have any unintended consequences, we probably would have gone over budget and, you know, not finished on time, but we were able to address what we needed to within the scope of the project. And so it landed really well. Yeah. Yeah, I, that, I, that makes sense. You know, I, I can imagine involving the people that it directly affects, you know, actually going out on the floor and finding out what's actually going on and how this is going to affect people uh, will make a big difference. I, I'm curious, though, like, how do you decide? Uh, obviously, you can't involve everybody in the mm. decision making. How do you decide, like, which stakeholders to involve? Or do you have, like, specific people you identify as, like, spokespeople for, like, a group? Or, or how does that work? Yeah, there's there's a little bit of a process involved. Probably the hardest part of it is doing um, what in the AIM um, methodology, the accelerating implementation methodology, which is the methodology for change management that I really ascribe to and that I'm certified in. The very first thing to do is what they call a key role map, which looks like an organizational chart, but actually has a much, much deeper and richer um, knowledge pattern to it so that you sort of surface who all reports to who and who all works with who and who all is responsible for what work so that you then, you know, you invest that kind of time at the front end so that you can very quickly make sure that you are talking to the right people because the impact of the change could be high, medium, or low. Not everyone is going to experience the same amount of impact, but then you sort of sort of triage. Who is it that's going to have the highest amount of impact from whom you need the highest level of commitment? And so there's a plan for those folks. And then again, you know, who who's going to be somewhat tangentially impacted. So you just need to keep them informed. A lot of this sounds similar to what project managers call the racy chart, you know, the responsibilities, the roles of who needs to be responsible, authorized, consulted, informed. It's the same kind of a process. And once you've figured that out, that's when I start looking for change champions, people who are going to be mm. evangelists, um, you know, people who are credible and considered, you know, very highly by their peers, people listen to them. And then you also tap change agents who are going to really be the the folks who move the ball forward for any particular team or any particular group they keep all of the risks and the issues you know hot you know hot on the plate and front and center so that the process can move through really efficiently because it it can't be one person doing all this it has to be um, multiple change agents and multiple change champions to make sure that you are capturing everybody's um, attention that needs to be part of this process. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, a big part of the role or one of, one of the components to your success is being able to really understand 
and get to know the culture of a company and like, you know, who's who and, and, you know, who are going to be those potential change agents and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, is that like, what's that like during the pandemic? Like now that everything, a lot of things are remote, that must be more challenging, right? I'm curious about what are the, what are both, I'm curious about what are both the challenges associated with that, but also some of the opportunities that working remotely brings. Well, one, one kind of service that cannot be offered remotely. Well, I take that back. There are, you know, there is telemedicine, but most healthcare still takes place yeah. in person. Yeah. <laughs> Haven't figured out how, how to do a remote brain surgery yet. So we're, we're talking about people who are actually physically mm-hmm. co-located in many cases. But for example, my role, I yeah. very rarely set foot inside a hospital these days. Mm. Um, the work that I do is mostly remotely. So it's a combination. It's a hybrid situation, the famous hybrid situation that everybody talks about which is that you work with people over Zoom or, you know, Teams or WebEx and really, um, you know, meet with the core constituency on a regular base, basis to, you know, support the work that they're doing. But they're actually out there um, on the units in the, you know, in the hospital, in the departments doing this work face to face with their colleagues. So it's it uh it has changed some of what we do, but in some ways it's a little bit more efficient to tell you the truth because um you know people can be on Zoom a little bit more easily than trying to find a conference room, get everybody together. I, mean, I don't miss any of that part. That's yeah, for sure. It, it's interesting. I was talking to a, a friend of mine who works for Bain, and he was saying how he you know he's so determined that everybody's going to go back to the office, and he's like, look, mm. you know, Google, you know, they said they were going to do this remote thing, they're no longer doing it. Everything, everyone's, everything's just going to go exactly back to the way it was. But he's also incentivized because he was just saying that so much of the work that he does is influenced by everything that's being talked about in the corridors, in the Mm, cafeterias, mm -hmm. in the smoking breaks, in the, um, and it's just not replicable online or or in a virtual setting for him. But for other people, it's like, yeah, like, you know, just the way you kind of describe, it's not, not as such a big of a problem. And it actually does offer. You know, I hear as many theories, I guess, as you do about whether people are going to be going back to offices or not. Mm. You know, I don't I don't know what, you know, or how people are going to decide this. Um, I do miss being with people for sure. I mean, that's kind of my thing. Right. But there's a lot of efficiency in doing work in this hybrid fashion. Um, The one thing that it does, you know, present challenges for is really developing really close relationships. So you have to figure out really good ways to do that. And you have to be very in tune with. Um, some of the attributes of change management that I've always been pretty pretty clearly focused on, but even more so now, which is really listening to how people describe the work they do. Mm. Um, you know, I always adopt the the terminology of the group of people I'm working with. If they call it teaching, I call it teaching. If they call it coaching, I call it coaching. So that you are not introducing anything into the environment that doesn't need to be changed. You're not, you're not there to teach them change management. You're there to help them be effective and efficient. So, you know, really thinking about how to help them um, adopt and, uh, and and commit to a change without introducing a lot of new le- you know lexicon or terminology above and beyond what they have to learn with the new product 
is is something that is easier done in person, but it's not that it can't be done remotely. It's just that you have to be a little bit more focused on it and pay a little bit closer attention to the way people talk to each other who are part of the the culture that you're working with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So definitely requires good listening skills and empathy. And yeah, I can imagine... uh, it'd be confusing for people if you just came in and started throwing around new terminology and buzzwords and acronyms and so on. Yeah. Nobody, nobody wants to learn (laughs) another set of acronyms, do they? Yeah. 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 You have uh, my one son, my one son always calls it being a noticer. He he always says, I notice you're, you're, I notice you're a noticer. (laughs) I am. I'm a noticer. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Cool. So Molly, for those of our listeners who are interested in learning more about change mm-hmm. management, is there a good resource or a first step someone can take to to find out more? Yeah, I get um, asked that question pretty often. So I've actually developed what I call the week to change. It's a series of emails that come once a day for five days to really help people understand a very specific you know, way of of adopting or adapting to the the process of change management so that they can use these techniques and adopt them in the work that they're doing. It's uh, a very quick and easy way to learn how to tee up a process or a project for success with considering the human factors of change. And then just to sort of gently walk you through a couple of examples of how you might use change management principles and methodology in your own work. So it's a good way to get an introduction to change management, understand how it dovetails with the rest of the kind of work people are doing, especially with project management, and just really give you a a sort of window into how to think about your projects differently so that people do commit to and adopt the new technology or the new process that you want them to. Fantastic. And and the web address for that is weektochange.com. Is that right? Correct. Great. Weektochange.com. Fantastic. Well, um, thank you so much, Molly, for coming on the show. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. You're welcome, Jonathan. My pleasure. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you could give us a five-star rating. You can do that on Spotify at the top of the show listing or on Apple Podcasts if you scroll down to the reviews and ratings section. It literally takes one minute and helps others determine the quality of the show.